this morning's kind of weird for me right now. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. This is actually going to be my last sermon until the beginning of Advent. Um, as you know, I'm going to be uh, uh, starting paternity leave on August 29th, the day after the, uh, or sorry, I guess that's August 30th, the day after our fifth anniversary party. Um, and I'm kind of ramping down between now and then. Um, but this was supposed to be this morning, the plan was we're going to wrap up our, our vision series on our, our kind of renewed vision statement to become the embodied hospitality of Jesus for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Um, but, and, and then starting next week, Bryce is going to kick us off in a sermon series on ne- Nehemiah, which I'm like actually stupid jealous about because it's an amazing book. I've wanted to preach on it, so maybe in a decade I could, you guys will forget what Bryce has said and I'll get a chance to. But the, I say that the plan was to do, to kind of wrap up this vision series in the past tense because I'm going to be calling an audible because honestly, to address that last fa- uh, phrase, for the glory of God and good of neighbor, and where we intend that to go, it honestly just doesn't feel like it totally fits right now in this moment. And like I just got done explaining, we launched as a church five years ago, and now as we are kind of relaunching and replanting as a church, it feels at once both really familiar and completely and utterly foreign at the same time. Like this is such a, a it's so confusing, like emotionally and existentially. Five years ago, we had all this momentum, right? We, we hadn't seen, we didn't know what this was going to be like. We had hopes and dreams, and, and a lot of those came into fruition. We saw people come to faith. We saw people who would not otherwise be in a church who are here. That's many of you, and that's amazing. But now as we're relaunching and replanting, some of you are, you know, more excited about church and have, feel like you have grown in your faith than you have ever before, but many of us are also struggling with faith and struggling maybe for the first time with that. If you hear, and, and if you've been here for more than a couple years, uh, the thought of rebuilding what took so much to do in the first place may feel totally overwhelming. So to talk about for the glory of God and good of neighbor, now, yes, it, it is absolutely still part of our vision. It still applies, and we're going to get there. But I actually want to pause, kind of slow down, and maybe recognize where we are as a church a little bit more intentionally and to bring the gospel to bear on that, that feeling of being overwhelmed by a fallen world. So I'm going to preach on, um, if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to read each of, like, I'm going to break this into three chunks because it's a long passage, but it's Luke 24 verses 13 through 33, sorry, through 35, actually. And um, (laughs) I didn't talk to Bryce and tell him what I was preaching. So when he's talking about the disciples meeting in the upper room and the first thing that Jesus says is peace be with you and peace to you, uh, this is the passage immediately before what he was referring to. Um, And so this is a resurrection appearance of Jesus on Easter Sunday, the same day that the empty tomb was discovered. And I think you're going to see as we read, especially this first chunk of it, how easy it is to relate to the disciples in this moment in being overwhelmed by a fallen world. So let me pray, and then I'll read. Jesus, thank you for the encouragement that we have in your word, that we are not the first church to experience feeling overwhelmed. Um, We're not the first 
people or Christians to feel overwhelmed by life in a fallen world in ways that we have never been more able to accurately state. This is a shared experience now. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the encouragement to know that you are faithful even in the midst of and despite the circumstances and symptoms of, of the fall. Lord, be with us. Help us to see more clearly not just this hope, but you yourself. We pray this in your name. Amen. So verse 13 says this, the very day, that very day that the empty tomb was discovered, two of them, of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And I love this line. It says, and they stood still looking sad. Like they were so stunned. They're like, what do you mean? What are we talking about? You haven't heard about this? Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? <laughs> and they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us who were with, some who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, or here, I'm going to pause there actually and just read through verse 24. Let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of, of Cleopas and his friend. It doesn't say whether this is his friend, his wife. It's, I'm just going to refer to them as, as the two travelers. But let's put ourselves in their shoes. They had just experienced Jesus telling the users and abusers of, of, of God's people that there is a greater kingdom in this world that they are under the allegiance of. He just got done feeding 5,000 people with an ancient Near Eastern Happy Meal. He raised people from the dead, cured them of disease and sickness. In every way, God's plan of redemption had seemed to be moving forward. In every way, God's people in this time and place were excited. There was all of this momentum. People were coming to faith. They were following Jesus. And then he was betrayed. And the rug was pulled out from underneath them. Their world was turned upside down. And the words that I kept coming to and sticking out to me in this passage as I was reading for the sermon were these four words in verse 21, but we had hoped. But we had hoped. To say that they are grieving unmet ex expectations is way too mild. More accurately, it would be to say they are grieving murdered hopes and dreams. All of that is, is, is caught up and laden in the meaning and the weight of those four words, but we had hoped. 
And you can tell they're just, they're just trying to, to wrap their heads around it, right? Because we think just like them that if we can, if we can just understand why our expectations didn't match with reality, if we can just understand why something bad happens or why we feel overwhelmed, then we can bring those circumstances, we can bring the fallen world we live in back into alignment with how we understood it before. That's what grief is all about, is accepting it. But it doesn't work that way. We can't do that. And in doing so, and focusing on that, we may be missing redemption that is staring us in the face, just as these two travelers had. Now, if, if, if you're a fan of Ted Lasso, um, I would highly recommend to you another uh, TV show that you also should not watch with kids around. Um, it's called Rev, and it's, uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime. Bryce is laughing because, like, we pastors, it, it, the, the title Rev is, is short for reverend, so it's about a, an Anglican priest. Um, and I say that it's similar to Ted Lasso, basically on the surface level, only in that uh, it takes place in England. Uh, but in every other way, it's like it's it's just as funny. But where Ted Lasso is this kind of almost like naive kindness that is like idealistic and beautiful in awesome, hilarious ways. Rev is whatever the opposite of that is. Um, but because of that, because it's like this kind of Ecclesiastes of of TV shows and its and its cynicism, it's remarkably validating and hilarious, especially if you're a pastor. But in 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 season three. There's this moment where this, this Anglican priest, his name is Adam, who, like, he, was, he inherited and was given the task of, of caring for a congregation that is literally falling apart, both the church spiritually and physically, like the roof is literally caving in. And after three seasons worth of episodes in this, it's becoming just too much. And he's getting really desperate. He's becoming overwhelmed by this fallen world <laughs> that he is living in the midst of. And he, he takes a walk. He goes on a walk, and he goes up to this hill that's overlooking the city of London. And you can tell he's just distressed, right? And he's desperate. He's looking for God. He's trying to find him in the midst of this. And you think he's cracking, actually, because he starts to sing a hymn, and he's like dancing kind of like this on the top of a hill overlooking London by himself in the middle of nowhere. And it's super awkward. And then all of a sudden, this stranger walks up to him, and he's dressed in kind of like a tracksuit, and you're like, oh, I did not know Liam Neeson was in the show, because it's Liam Neeson. And he's playing the stranger, and he's got this kind of gruff voice that I'm not going to try and attempt to imitate the, the accent, but he is like this kind of like, you know, low, gruff voice and super serious in the way that Adam is like meek and help. And so this is this interaction with them, between them. The stranger says to Adam, well, you're in an awfully good mood this morning. And Adam says, well, I'm trying to keep, I'm actually not, because I'm trying to keep something alive, but I don't think I can do it. And the stranger replies, ah, you know, I've learned a few things over the years. Oh, yes, says Adam. You can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. Right. Thanks. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I see, Adam says. We are what we eat. Yep. You buy cheap, you buy twice. Adam just sighs at that one. The open hand has the strongest grip. To which Adam says, it's okay, you can stop now. 
Never parachute into an area you've just bombed. Add him to his credit. Says, well, act, that's, a, that's actually a good one. But this stranger whom he's never met then stops and just looks at him. He says, Adam, Adam, we all have our crosses to bear. Yes, we do. I understand, Adam. I'll always be here. If you hadn't caught, by the way I told this, this is a modern fictional retelling of The Road to Emmaus, where Liam Neeson is playing Jesus, which on its own is hilarious. And when Adam says, but I don't think I can do it, you can feel watching this clip, you can, you can understand how much he is saying, just like the disciples did, but we had hoped. And who can't relate to that? I, would, I want you to ask yourself, what, what did you expect in your life, in your experience in this fallen world, what did you anticipate would be redeemed by now? About what do you say, yeah, but I had hoped. Maybe you had hoped that your career would be a lot further along, or maybe that like what you went to college for, you actually enjoyed and weren't in a total loss that, that you're going to have to figure something else or be miserable. Maybe you had hoped that your, that your marriage would be a lot less volatile and a lot more vulnerable. Maybe you had hoped that parenting and having kids would get easier as they get older, and then you realized that everybody, all of us, have been believing that lie. Otherwise, like the, the human race would have stopped propagating a long time ago. Maybe you had hoped that your friends and family wouldn't be divided over politics, especially if they're Christians that we could actually be in the same and coexist in the same church together with people who voted differently since we believe, believe similarly. Maybe you had hoped that the culture wars would not have determined our experience of this pandemic or that masks and a vaccine would not have been weaponized for political ends. Maybe you had hoped that your experience of the table would be a lot better than it is. For the record, me too. <laughs> Me too. I didn't have on my bingo card in the last year that, that we wouldn't have the chance to do what we had planned this fall and, and do elder nominations and, and so that we can go through a season of training potential elders and then voting on particularizing as a church and becoming established as a church next fall. I had hoped we would. I had hoped we wouldn't be homeless as a church and wouldn't know where we were going to meet and gather on Sunday morning one month from today and two weeks after I am supposed to start my paternity leave. I had hoped that I had bucked the trend as a pastor among most of our friends who are in vocational ministry and was not nearly as isolated or feeling as lonely as they do. I had hoped that upon returning and regathering as a church, I wouldn't feel the need to start taking a medication for anxiety. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8 say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I read that passage because when we are overwhelmed by a fallen world, we do exactly as the two travelers did on the road to Emmaus. We get sucked into and so focused on the circumstances that we miss the greater reality that can heal our flesh and refresh our bones. We, we end up leaning on our own understanding and trying to figure, out, figure it out, but instead of being able to focus more, it kind of has the opposite effect of horse blinders. And instead of being able to focus on the thing that's right in front of you that we should be focused on that will give us healing for our flesh and re refreshment for our bones, we become consumed with the circumstances and all the things that we end that sentence with, but we had hoped. I don't mean to project on you how I am doing, <laughs> but it's a preacher trick that when you are disconnected from your people or you feel like you're not really sure that if you take the gospel and apply it to your own heart, you can trust that God will and can do that on his own without your help. And so I'm kind of trying to practice literally what I'm preaching in and through this sermon. But there's some really, like we haven't even read the entire passage and there's some amazing news in the midst of what we've already read and focused on. I don't know if you noticed this because it can be really easy to get kind of sucked into the details and not see the big picture here. But even before Jesus responds, even before he answers their answer to his question, there's this absolutely massive, beautiful, comforting, and really ironic gift embedded in it, which is this, that despite being overwhelmed by a fallen world, despite not trusting in God or seeking and leaning into his understanding by mentioning or bringing up or, or rooting their experience in scripture and leaning on their own understanding instead, they still summarized the gospel, <laughs> Like, isn't that incredible? That they're at a loss. They don't know which end is up, and yet they're just description, their description of the, their circumstances and why they're disappointed and overwhelmed still manages to present the good news. <laughs> the good news that they is literally staring them in the face. And then their, their fumbling is immortalized in Scripture. Their weakness becomes our strength. Because God redeems their overwhelmingness by preserving it for our comfort and reassurance of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you know how freeing that is? Like, you can't mess that up. It's, okay. it's not just okay to feel overwhelmed. It's actually a prelude to experiencing resurrection life. You having your crap all together is actually counterproductive to God's purposes and love for you. As Paul says, when telling of God's answer to his prayers to remove a thorn, he says that God told him, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's good news. Thankfully, Jesus gives a lot more than just freedom to fail in the midst of this. He gives us himself. He gives us himself to superly, supernaturally sustain us through two what we call uh, means of grace, 
which are basically just vehicles or ways that we can experience resurrection life in a fallen world. And, and the short, handy, pithy summary of those is word and sacrament. And I'm going to talk about each of these. Let me read verse 25 through 27 first. It picks up and it says, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you've been in the church for any length of time, a lot of times when, when you're struggling and someone quotes scripture to you, it doesn't feel great, right? It can feel trite, like some kind of silver lining that is, that is actually a, a clever Christianized way of, of avoiding having to empathize and be with you in the midst of it. But that is not what Jesus is doing here. We are seeing him not snarkily, but compassionately responding to them. He says, oh, you're so misled. You so don't see it. You're so confused. I'm with you. Let's do this. Let's walk through this together. And that becomes a supernatural support. Verse 32, which we're going to read in a second, it actually says that they, um, it says, did, our, did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked to, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That's actually a preview and a foreshadowing to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down and God's presence is indelibly imprinted upon his people. We get that through his word. Proverbs 3, the first half of that verse says, which I read a minute ago, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And that begs this question. If it's steadfast and faithful, how can love forsake you without ceasing to be steadfast and faithful? The answer is it can't. It's kind of a rhetorical question. So when it says, don't let that forsake you, how can you let that? Verse 3b, the second half of that articulates it. It says, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, we let it forsake us. We experience a forsaking of steadfast love and, and faithfulness from God when we forget it. And therefore, God's word is how we remember that it's true. Let's do this. Let me tell you what I mean. I don't want to just talk about this. Let's do this together, okay? The Bible gives us all throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, as Jesus just said, it's all about him. And what that means is that we have in Scripture what, what Hebrews calls a great cloud of witnesses, a ton of illustrations, stories, examples, testimonies that tell the story of God's faithfulness over and over again so that we can look at them and say to ourselves, God didn't abandon them. He won't abandon me. A friend of mine, his name's Brandon O'Brien. He's an author. Um, he recently preached a sermon in his church called Sources of Spiritual Strength for the Spiritually Weary, so kind of related to what we're talking about. And he talks about these three places in Hebrews where it says, by faith, blank, you know, somebody, one of God's people, one of these witnesses received this gift and they were redeemed. Their story was redeemed. And Hebrews just lists these as like a reminder and an encouragement. And he says this about those three passages. He says, at first blush, it may look like the witness's faith caused these miraculous things to happen because each of those verses start with, by faith, right? 
But that's not the case. He says, if you go back and read the story of Sarah, you'll see that Sarah received the promise before she believed the promise. Her faith didn't make her pregnant. God did that. If you go back and read the story of the Red Sea crossing, you'll see that the Israelites didn't part the sea with a great act of faith. God did that. If you go back and read the story of Jericho, you'll see that marching and blowing trumpets didn't make the walls fall down. God did that. What could be more overwhelming than life in a fallen world than forgetting that God did that, that God redeemed in circumstances far worse than what we have been through? What could, be more, what could more powerfully move us from saying, but we had hoped to, I believe, help me in my unbelief, than remembering the great cloud of witnesses who have also been overwhelmed by a fallen world and were yet redeemed by a faithful God? This is why the word is a means of grace for us. It reminds us that God is not absent. And that leads us to the second one, which I'm going to read the passage that we'll jump off as a springboard for in verses 28 through 35. It says this, So they drew near to the village to which they were going, Emmaus. Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. In other words, it's, like, it's evening. It's past the time where it's safe to travel on the road. And they just go back because they cannot wait anymore. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in, and this is key, that he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Sacrament is knowing Jesus through communion. You might not have noticed because we're not ancient Near Eastern or first century Jews or, or Greeks even, but this was really weird to read for them, Right? They invited him in. Jesus was the guest. And normally, and by normally, I mean exclusively, it is the host, the one who invites you in, who blesses the meal, who breaks the bread. But Jesus is the one who does this. <laughs> this would have been completely just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Pause the, hit, hit the pause button, stop the story. That doesn't happen. And it would have caught their attention. And what it catches our attention to when we ask why they did that doesn't actually say it explicitly, but we can know from the context that we see that this is the point where the two travelers were so tired, were so overwhelmed by a fallen world. They were past their limits of understanding, and they were too weak to lean on any understanding or anything or any one other than Jesus. You see, God often puts a wall in front of us. He often allows us to be overwhelmed by a fallen world in order to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can finally experience how insufficient our own understanding is to lean on. 
that we might actually be humble enough to receive his hospitality. Now, I know some of you are thinking like, I I love receiving hospitality from Jesus. That sounds awesome. I like being cared for and served. Like these are good things. I don't believe you because I don't either. And because when Jesus was at the Last Supper on the night that he was betrayed, right before they have the, he breaks the bread and blesses that, he stops to wrap a towel around himself and wash the feet of his disciples. And what does Peter say? He says, no, Jesus, you will never, you will never be a host to me. I should wash your feet. And Jesus responds and says, you have no part in what we're doing here if you cannot receive my hospitality. It's a paraphrase. The point of that is, yes, as a church, our vision statement is that we would become the embodied hospitality of Jesus, but we cannot embody something that we never experience. It takes a blind, bootstrapping kind of faith that God never asks us of us in order to, to, to do otherwise, to try and offer hospitality that we're not also intentionally tasting and seeing ourselves. That's what communion is. It is an anchor and a root such that we are nourished by Jesus and we can extend his hospitality and embody it both in tasting and in serving. One of my pastor friends has what is my favorite definition of hospitality. He says, hospitality is God's love made tasty. God's love made tasty. And if that's the case, then communion then is God's presence made nourishing. Because like Liam Neeson slash Jesus to Adam, Jesus says to us in communion, I will always be here. He says, I will always be here. I will always be here. And I will always be here. If you haven't, but have a question you'd like to ask during the Q&A, go ahead and text it in now, but I want to leave you with one kind of big so what. Like, what do we do with this? Why am I going here? Why am I talking about this for us as a church in this moment in time and place? My point is this, that when we receive these means of grace as God's guests in community, we start to become more overwhelmed by Jesus' hospitality than we become overwhelmed by the fallen world we live in. It doesn't make that go away. It doesn't even make it bearable some days. But it makes it good somehow. And that's not something that I can describe. It's just something that is. Because he is there in it. And the good news about that is neither you nor I have to understand that. But if you are like me, um, white knuckling hospitality right now, the answer is not to check out, to quit, to do less. It may be, but that's not what I'm saying. It's not to bowl with bumpers by padding the effects of the fall in your life. 
is to even more intentionally receive Jesus' hospitality through word and sacrament as we go. Congratulations. We're literally doing it right now. That's how good he is, that he actually works through the thing we, he calls us to do anyway. But also, this, what's beautiful about this and what's good news about this is the very thing that we have to trust with our whole hearts to do, i.e. rebuild his church, is the very means of grace that we need in order to experience resurrection life in this fallen world. That's why we're doing this. That's why it's actually worth it, because he meets us in the midst of it. He doesn't ask us to do something that he has not already planned sovereignly and is at work in the midst of. Thank God. <laughs> so I guess if, if you hear nothing else, let me just read verses 5 and 8 of Proverbs 3 again, because this is the gift. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It will be healing to your, fresh, your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Trusting God with our whole hearts and not leaning our own understanding is, going to, is not something we have to do blindly. Just like Sarah, it's enough to receive that promise together through word and sacrament before we believe it. And God will do that. God, he will do it. So I don't know, let me see if we have any questions. Really? No questions. Y'all are like, no, I'm hot, it's smoky. Can we go home? Okay, awkward laugh means yes. So I just got done literally preaching on communion, but I want to say and point out and talk one more thing as we do that together, literally. One thing I didn't cover that also really stuck out for me and probably stuck out for you in this passage is when Jesus says that when he talks about how it was necessary, like the scriptures say it was necessary for him to, to suffer these things and then enter his glory. Now, if, if you or I are feeling overwhelmed by a fallen world, talking about the Messiah needing to suffer is like, okay, can you help me understand how that's connected, <laughs> right? Because immediately on the surface, maybe it's validating, but there's something deeper happening here in the way that Jesus is talking about this. He knows, and this is part of what we do every single time we gather with communion, is we need a constant reminder that our suffering is also a prelude to resurrection life. That in the same way that he died and suffered he, and, and rose from the grave, spiritually now we can experience through these means of grace resurrection life and God's not done with us yet that that is what we anticipate and look forward to in hope so that we don't have to say, but we had hoped. Because honestly, if you're like me, you experience difficulty and suffering as, as, as evidence of God's absence. And he's not. That I can tell you with utmost certainty, even when I struggle to believe it myself. Because it's true. It just is. And in verse 31, when he says that he... He broke bread. Um, he, I love the progression. It says that, that their eyes were closed. So he was seen, 
then recognized, and then unseen again. He vanished, in other words. That's, that's how it says. But, but what it doesn't say is that he left. And once again, no, the Holy Spirit is not here yet. Pentecost has not happened. That's not what's happening here. But there's a, there's a cliffhanger implicit in that phrase because it's, it implies that God is with us and he is known in the breaking of the bread. And so what we're doing this morning is spiritual refreshment through Jesus' mysterious presence in and among his people. So I'm going to pray, say what's, what we refer to as the words of institution, which is just quoting from, from Paul in, in his letter to the Corinthians. And then uh, in a moment, you can go to one of two locations, these black tablecloths uh, on my left and right and your left and right here in the middle um, Bryce and somebody else will be hosting at that table. We do this family style. We tried this last time for the first time. And so if, if you're like, I don't really know what to do because you're new, so are we. Um, and, and they'll walk you through it and hand you the elements there. But I'm going to um, s- say the words of institution. We'll pray and then initiate that as we go. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body it is broken for you. you. I am known in this breaking, and you will know that I love you when you remember my breaking. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out. And he said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the, the forgiveness of sins so that you know and can be reminded both cognitively and supernaturally in ways that you don't have to actually understand to happen, you are renewed and refreshed with, through my commitment to you, not through your commitment to me. You receive that promise. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. In other words, you never have to say in an ultimate sense, but I had hoped because your hope is founded on me. Let's pray. Jesus, wherever it is we are uh, this morning, (laughs) I imagine none of us feel like any differently than we do gazing at what we know to be true on the other side of the smoky haze is a beautiful mountain (laughs) range that points us to your glory and your love and your joy in your creation. But it's hard to see sometimes, Lord, and I pray that in the midst of this, you would help us to be reliant and leaning on your faithfulness and not our understanding. That no matter where, what is happening, no matter how we may feel, it is not an evidence of your absence because you are faithful even when we are not. And to be otherwise would be to be a God to be another God. So Lord, we thank you and ask you that you nourish us now as you have been already this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.